0: Hello and welcome to GLGB Virtual, we are live. As part of GLGB's recent adjustments to the coronavirus lockdown, we have been helping parents and young people stay entertained and active all online. In order to adapt our delivery to government restrictions, on the 23rd of March, we launched GLGB Virtual, which runs every Monday to Thursday evening. This is our way of ensuring that we can continue to delight, inform, And entertain young people so that they can have some fun learn new skills and make a difference sessions include skills like magic upcycling and coding physical activities and the focus of this podcast series interviews with expert speakers from a range of backgrounds including famous actors social entrepreneurs government ministers and many more these interviews are run by young people like myself So if you have any questions or want to get involved, please reach out to us on any social media platform. Just look for Judge and message us. We have so many exciting guests for you to listen to, and we hope you'll join us live very soon. For now though, join us through our catalogue of guests. Today's guest is renowned scientist and government advisor, Professor Lord Robert Winston. Sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy.
1: So, now, it is the moment we have all been waiting for. He's a Professor of Science and Society, Emeritus Professor of Fertility Studies at Imperial College London. He holds 23 honorary doctorates and a seat in the House of Lords. And tonight, he'll be here to answer your questions on coronavirus. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Professor the Lord Robert Winston. Professor Winston, how are you keeping positive during lockdown?
2: Um, well, I don't know really. I'm not particularly positive, I wouldn't think. I, I sort of manage. Um, I'm, I, I'm reading, I'm writing, I'm uh, doing a bit of exercise, um, I'm eating too much, um, I'm uh, looking at the spring coming through the garden and so on. Yeah, I mean, a whole range of different things. I don't think there's any one particular thing that I'm doing, but I think. Um, Really, one of the issues is to keep a sense of humour, and I think, um, and I think keep interested in stuff.
1: Great. So, um, so you yourself, you've had a, you've had an incredibly successful career as a professor, a medical doctor, a scientist, as well as on TV and in the House of Lords. Um, what would you say is your proudest moment in your career so far?
2: Um, I don't really think about proudest moments in careers. Actually, I think that. Um, I think that's a very dangerous way of looking at life. I think that really, uh, it's much more relevant to recognize how uh, how insignificant we all are. Really, I mean, in a sense, if you think about it, this current crisis has helped us reimagine ourselves and realize that we don't have complete control over everything, and that I think is in a way quite exciting as a challenge. I I don't think I have a a really proud moment that I would really um, um, outline, but I would say that as a scientist, there have been about five occasions when I've been very, very excited at seeing something new, which I knew that nobody had seen before or done before. Um, But I don't know whether I would grant that as being proud. Sometimes it's been uh, almost frightening uh, to suddenly realize You've solved a problem that you uh, that you weren't sure that you're going to be able to solve. And um, for example, when we uh, when we first um, managed to screen the human embryo for a serious genetic disorder, the first time it had been done in the world, and we put that embryo back in the in the uterus of the woman who'd lost a baby from that disease that she was carrying in her genes. Um, uh, when the pregnancy result came through two weeks later, we knew that she was pregnant. I went into the laboratory to my closest colleague who I'd done the work with. And I said, I think that she's pregnant. I think she she might have twins. I think because the chemistry suggests that she's got two, two babies in her uterus. And for 15 minutes, we didn't say a word to each other. We sat at the floor and we stared at the floor and thought about what we've been doing for the last five years to try and make this happen. Um, so it's not a proud moment. It's a it's an important moment for reflection. And when you go through all the things that you'd thought of before, all the risks that this woman had gone through, all the hardships she's had, all the difficulties we'd had, um, and you re-evaluate what you've been doing. And I think that's something which, is important. I think it's very, very important not to be too arrogant, not to be too proud of what you think you've done. Because most of the time, no matter what you achieve, if you win a Nobel Prize, um, well, I'll ask. Let me. I could let, let me ask the, the people. Who are, how many of you are watching? I can see there were sixty-nine participants according to my window. So, how many of you can remember the Nobel Prize winner for chemistry of five years ago? Anybody? Complete silence. Of course. Well, of course you can't, because neither can I. Um, And the fact of the matter is that, um, you know, whatever we do is really, really rather insignificant. And so many of the things are, I think, in life is to value partly what you have and to value other people and value your principles. Very nice. Does that sound very preachy?
1: No, it sounds it sounds really inspirational, actually. Um, I mean, when when you were when you were younger, was that the sort of thing that motivated you to get into science and medicine, kind of making change, or what was no, it?
2: Not really. I, I left school without knowing what I wanted to do. Right. And I um, I I really wanted to do English at university. At least a big part of me wanted to do English, or because I liked the theatre and I was very much involved with drama. I used to do quite a lot of acting, um, but I ended up doing the wrong A levels. Um, Uh, My school didn't um, really help me uh, in a particular way to do the things that perhaps I would have perhaps preferred to have done. I ended up doing science A-levels. And um, I left school without a clue what I wanted to do. I thought I might want to do medicine, but I wasn't sure. I had a place to do a scientific degree. Um, And then at the last minute after leaving school and sitting around for a bit, I decided to apply to a medical school. I did. I qualified in medicine, and then, having done medicine for four years, I gave it up, and I directed it in the theatre. And I, I, I did a play at the Edinburgh Festival, which amazingly won a prize. So I then had a tussle about: do I take this completely new career of doing theatre, or do I go back to medicine? And I decided I want to do that quite. So I went into scientific research in medicine. So uh, my career has not exactly been um, a straight path. And I think that's very important because I think the thing to remember is that you can be very successful, even though you haven't got a clue which way you're going to go or what's around the corner. So don't don't be too put off if you don't get quite what you expect to get as you go through school and as you go through university, because things happen that you don't expect and you end up doing things that you never imagined you would do. You don't think I actually thought I was going to be in the House of Lords do you or actually I was going to be writing scientific papers which would change people's lives or um, you know all the sort of things I've done. No of course not or writing books. I never thought I'd be writing books. In fact actually I can tell you this as a student if anybody had told my friends who were with me as a student that I was going to be a professor at a large university, a very famous university, they would have had a head injury as they fell over laughing. They wouldn't have believed it. So I think, you know, that's one of the things to remember.
1: That's great advice that I guess life never, never goes how you expect it to go. Um, and I guess it's quite good advice at the moment as well. Um, and I think obviously you've focused on, um, you've, you've, your work's largely focused on fertility, Um, And lots of people have been saying that, um, I guess, we could have a similar event like the baby boomers of the Second World War at the moment. I mean, what do you think about this?
2: In what respect? Sorry, Lewis.
1: That there could be another kind of increase in newborns, like another baby boom, because of the pandemic.
2: I've no idea. You know, what what you should never ask a scientist to do is to predict the future. Because we're no better at predicting the future than anybody else. I've no idea what will happen, whether there'll be another baby boom or not. Um... It, it, it's possible, though actually, if you look at world populations, um, the, the the population of countries, where there is high education, and um, a, a strong uh, market and good um, state um, management of the economy, and actually also democracy, the population tends to fall. So in Western Europe and Britain, um, over the last uh, 20 or 30 years, uh, the birth rate actually has been falling. The only reason why it hasn't fallen more is because of the immigrant population, um, who of course have come in and they've been having babies. But actually once they, once they settle, they stop having quite so many babies. So I think on, in general, um, rich societies tend to have smaller families, right. almost, almost without exception.
1: Interesting. So for the next part, I'm going to open up to the to the rest of the viewers to ask some questions. Now, we understand that you're not the person making the decisions with COVID-19, but I'm sure the questions won't be too far from your day job. Um, there's a lot of worried young people and families out there at the moment, but we've, it's been really amazing and reassuring to see that we've had a really big response to you being the guest tonight, and we've got a lot of questions. So the first question is from Ronnie Ben Shear.
0: Okay. Hello, Lord Winston. My name Hi, is um, My question is, what exactly is coronavirus?
2: Well, viruses are strange particles which are really, really mi- microscopic. They're much smaller than bacteria. And there are many viruses that, that are, are present, most of which don't cause harm. Um, Coronavirus is called coronavirus because it's quite spiky. If you look at it under a very, very high magnification under an electron microscope, you can see all these spikes sticking out of it. So that looks like a corona, a kind of crown. So corona is the Latin for crown. And so this is a virus with a crown. So that's what it is technically. Um, but essentially what it is really almost entirely is, is, is um, a piece of DNA which, um, which is n- not like human DNA, and it has—it um, a- has, as it happens, like many viruses, the ability to infect um, other organisms. So viruses can infect bacteria, they can infect uh, small animals, they can infect humans, uh, they can infect plants, and different viruses have different ways of doing this. Um, some viruses live inside cells. So, you sitting there, Ronnie, are just a lump of cells. You actually are about, um, just looking at you, I would think you're about seven trillion cells. You might be a bit less than that, maybe five trillion, because they're not that big yet. Um, But um, inside you, you've probably got another 25 trillion cells which are not yours, but a bacteria. And inside those bacteria, you will have some viruses which are completely harmless, harmless. We all carry viruses, um, but coronavirus has evolved um, and is dangerous because it causes this severe illness. Not in everybody, for reasons we don't understand. It may be due to the DNA that different people have. Some people may be naturally resistant to it. We don't know yet, but we're finding that out.
1: That's very interesting. And now the, the next question is from Simone Silver.
0: Hi, how are you? I hope you are. Well.
2: Um, how does a new disease actually start? How
0: does a new what? Disease.
2: How does it start?
0: Yeah.
2: Well, it starts with the symptoms of a, of a kind of, um, well, it, it's a bit, it's a flu. It's a bit like influenza, essentially. So um, it infects cells, um, usually at the back of the throat, and these can go down into the chest and it causes inflammation, and um, it tends to destroy uh, a lot of the cells. So the reason why this is dangerous because um, if it gets into the chest in unusual circumstances, because it doesn't do this very often, uh, then it it can cause um, severe problems with breathing. Um, But essentially, it's a bit like influenza. I don't know, have you ever had flu? I
0: think so, yeah, when I was younger.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, so it starts off quite often with a temperature and a headache and not feeling very well, sore throat, uh, feeling tired. Uh, but then, you know, truth to tell, so many things do that. That's one of the difficulties because, of course, the symptoms um, of the coronavirus are not specific to the coronavirus; they are specific to a whole range of infections which we can get. So, one of the problems is that you need to have we need to have better tests to decide when somebody's got a temperature or is not feeling very well that they've actually got the virus. And that's been difficult to do uh, for technical reasons. It's sometimes quite difficult to detect uh, viruses. It's much easier to detect bacteria. Um, They're bigger, bacteria are much larger than viruses. Um, And they're much more like a living form. While viruses are like little particles, it's hardly alive you could argue that they're not really alive at all, um, but there they are.
1: Thank you. Um, thank you, Professor Winston. And um, if um, obviously the, the new coronavirus is, we think it's a virus that hasn't infected humans before. So how does such a new outbreak come about?
2: Oh, well, the DNA changes. So basically what happens with any, any organism, uh, humans as well and dogs and you know fleas and bacteria, uh, they can mutate and we all mutate so we all have changes in our DNA and some of those DNA changes um, are particularly suitable for living in a given environment that's the process of evolution so basically viruses evolve like anything else does but they can evolve much quicker than we can we, we evolve very slowly because each generation of humans is about 20 years on average Uh, We would argue that you know there will be in uh, you know in a in a thousand years there will be, let's say, uh, twenty to a thousand. So you know we're looking at you know five. What are we looking at? Five hundred, aren't we? Looking at a very few uh, generations. Um, Sorry, I mean fifty generations in a thousand years. So in in the in the time of uh, let's say Homo sapiens has been on the planet for. Let's say a um, hundred thousand years, then there would be about five thousand generations of humans in that time. It's not very many. So, well, as a bacterium can uh, can breed a new bacteria every twenty minutes. So its evolution is very quick, and it will respond to its environment. So that really is what happens with viruses. Viruses can actually change their DNA, and that's why they change their their whole. Um, mode of response in the in the host that they infect
1: okay so um thank you for that and i think emma solomons
2: has the next question
0: Uh, hi is there a difference between coronavirus and covid19
2: well covid19 is the technical time for coronavirus there are a whole range of different coronaviruses that look like that under the microscope covid19 is a specific example of it that's all but coronavirus. Corona, coronaviruses are these viruses that have this crown. Bear in mind, I'm not a virologist, you know, it's not my field, this. So, you know, I mean, I had no idea you wanted to talk to me about, about the virus. I thought you might be talking about to me about much more interesting things, but there we are. Uh, well, I think you're definitely more qualified to answer these questions than any of us. I'm not sure. Um,
1: <laughs> but um, I think we've got a few more on coronavirus, and then we've got um, some other subjects to discuss. Um But um, I think the next question is from Talia Toombs.
2: Talia? Yeah, hi. Hello, Talia.
0: Um, Why is washing your hands so important during the coronavirus?
2: Because washing your hands um, is extremely effective at killing all organisms. So basically, you kill bacteria, and you kill viruses, and actually you also kill your skin, unfortunately, if you go on washing it indefinitely. So, but if you if you kill um, cells don't like being, there are certain things that most cells don't like. So they don't like um, soap. They don't like alkali things. They hate bleach. So for example, if you want to kill a virus, you can pour bleach on them, but actually I don't suggest you wash your hands in bleach because that's pretty unpleasant. Um, You can use ultraviolet light. That's very, very bright sunlight. That will kill viruses, and it will also kill your skin as well and cause burns. So that's why we don't use that. But soapy water um, isn't a bad way. Another way of doing it is alcohol. The other thing you can do, of course, is to use very, very high temperatures. But, you know, on the whole, I suspect you wouldn't want to put your hands in in the red coals of a fire, would you? Because you'd have other problems with it. And sometimes you can use irradiation, uh, x-rays, for example, if they're powerful enough for some some organisms. That's not so effective. So basically soapy water, uh, and it's preferable to have warm water rather than cold water. If you wash your hands thoroughly, I mean, it says 20 seconds on the the, uh, instructions. I tend to wash my hands for a bit longer than that. Wash between your fingers and on the backs of your hands up to the wrist and then you have really clean hands, which will not have the virus. And uh, surgeons, when they are scrubbing up, ready to do an operation, uh, and of course, I am a qualified surgeon, we, we would wash our hands for five minutes in soapy water. And we also use compounds in the soap, which are specifically effective at killing organisms, one of which is iodine. I'm sure you've heard of iodine because we sometimes put it on cuts. It's a very effective way of sterilizing something. So a lot of the surgical soaps which are used by surgeons contain iodine because that's a very effective way of killing bacteria and not infecting somebody on whom you're operating. But for practical purposes at home, if we just wash our hands with soapy water, with good soap, that's mostly good enough.
1: Great. So thank you, that's advice I think everyone should heed. Um, the next question is from Dina Lewis.
2: Adina.
0: Hello. Um, Are some people more genetically vulnerable to COVID-19 and does this influence how severe their symptoms are? Can it explain why some people without underlying health conditions have severe symptoms?
2: Well, you, you know, that's a very intelligent question. And the answer is I don't know the answer because we don't know the answer. But I think you're right. I think it's almost certain that some of us have particular DNA which actually... Either protects us or makes us more makes us more vulnerable, um, and of course, there's no way of knowing at the moment because this is a new virus. But I think in the long term, uh, that will be one of the puzzles that we have to untangle. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I think your your guess, your question, is absolutely spot on. I think that's probably um, a key issue, and it may well be that that's why some people have very mild symptoms and others don't. Of course, it might also be that there's more than one DNA configuration in the virus, so it might be the virus producing a mild infection has a slightly different DNA from the one that's producing the very shocking virus thing, which occasionally makes people very ill, and in rare circumstances can kill people. It doesn't kill people very often, but it does occasionally. So I think there are a lot of very interesting things here, but because this is so new, you know, this is the virus that's only been around. Um, as far as we know, really since about last November, December. it was only first th- seen in, in, in Wuhan in China, you know, just three months ago. So um, it does seem to be a pretty new organism. This isn't unusual because new organisms occur all the time. There are always new forms of flu viruses, for example. They're always mutating. So pig flu, avian flu the flu which killed people in, after the First World War, um, the Chinese flu, these flus, they come and go and they come and they are particularly infective because of some aspect of their DNA. So one of the interesting things is uh, whether you and I have DNA which would make us resistant to being infected. There's no way of knowing, and we shouldn't really try and find out because it's just a bit too risky, So what we do is we sit cluttered, uh, closed up in our houses, washing our hands. But of course, if we knew that we had DNA, which would make us resistant, we'd be wandering around without any worry. And it may well be that quite a lot of us watching this today, a lot of you in the room there in your rooms would be quite resistant, but it's not worth, it's not worth the risk.
1: Okay. Yep. Thank you for that question, um, Dina. And the next question is from Monica.
0: When, once someone's had the coronavirus, when they get better, can they go out or do they still have to self-isolate?
2: Well, the uh, you know, I can't answer the question because there have not been good data yet. Um, I, I think uh, the supposition in your question is right, that once you've had the infection with coronavirus, you'd expect to have antibodies. That is, your body produces... Uh, Uh, proteins and other things which prevent you from getting the infection again. That's what happens with smallpox. It's what happens with measles. It's what happens with uh, some forms of flu. Uh, You can't get them twice. Now, actually flu you can get recurrently. So it's a possibility that the coronavirus might reinfect you and there is some suggestion that one or two people have been reinfected. But you're probably right with your question that actually once you've had the infection and you've got rid of all the particles of, of the virus inside your body, because that may take a few days to shed them after the infection, then you should be completely protected and you probably can't infect other people. You would be resistant. So that's what we're rather hoping. We call that herd immunity. When people, a lot of people together, end up being infected and then in fact are resistant, That's one way that these viruses die out. So in the long term, it's very possible that what will happen is that a lot of people will have such mild infection or will get immunized uh, that actually, ultimately, the virus will not have a host. So if it doesn't, it will then die out. And that's what happens with nearly all these viruses. Eventually, they do die out. Um, And so um, we're left resistant to one more virus. But at the moment, of course, we're not resistant to coronavirus. It's too early.
1: Great, so let's let's hope we can develop such resistance. I guess a question from me, um, there's obviously a lot of conflict often between ethics and science and religion and science. Um, I guess the, the the business of visiting family members in hospital if they, were, um, if they had COVID-19, what, what do you think are the ethical issues surrounding that? Should, it, should you be able to do it? Should you not be able to do it? What do you Well, think? I think
2: at the moment, I, I mean, I think you should be able to do it, but at the moment we just don't have enough protective clothing and, Therefore, first of all, uh, if we come in contact with somebody who's got the raging infection, we may pass it on to the population uh, next to us in a very uncontrolled way, and we could end up with an even worse pandemic than we've got. So at the moment, the government in nearly pretty well every major um, civilized country, Israel, Germany, Italy, Britain, um, is limiting people in their travel, and on the whole... Uh, people are not being encouraged to visit relatives who are ill. Unfortunately, that's a necessity because it's very difficult to protect the visitors from getting infected. But in the fullness of time, I think we will be able to do that. But at the moment, that's not possible.
1: Okay, and um, thank you. And the next question is from Molly Massa.
2: Molly, hello.
0: Firstly, I'd just like to say thank you for spending your time here. And secondly, can coronavirus affect your pets? Your which? Pets. Your patch? Pets.
2: Oh, your pets. Oh, yes. That's a very interesting question. Well, we know that there's a tiger that's got infected with coronavirus in New York, in the zoo. Um, And we think that it might infect pets, Uh, but we don't know. So that's a big worry, actually, uh, because obviously if you have coronavirus in dogs, that could spread the infection in the general population. I don't think we can really answer that question with any degree of certainty. But one of the really serious problems with a lot of viruses is that if they do infect animals, they become very much more dangerous to humans. So we don't really, I don't think we can really answer that question truthfully at the moment. Um, But it's a very, very good question to ask. um, Because ultimately, I think that's gonna be one of the things that we will need to know. We're assuming that pets are not being infected. Certainly there's no evidence of a lot of animals getting infected, that's very clear. But it is possible that the coronavirus did start with animals and the animals which have been most most incriminated are bats. Bats are, you know what bats are, of course, they are, they're flying mammals. Uh, they they, they um, usually nest together in crowded spaces in the dark. They're warm-blooded, so they're quite a good host for all sorts of nasty organisms. And bats have a whole range of quite dangerous diseases, from tuberculosis to rabies, which is a virus, and um, we think that coronavirus might have started in the bat population. But whether it's there at the moment, I don't know. But fortunately, we don't have very many bats flying around in London or in Britain, really. So we're probably safe from bat, bat bite, which is probably what we would need. But in China, that may be different. But with regard to pets, I mean, I, has anybody in the room got a, a pet bat? You have, Talia says, Talia put her hand up. She says she's got a pet bat. Well, you're very unusual. Um, I wouldn't mind having a pet bat, actually. But, um, but, I, but, you know, I'm, I, but I'm not sure I want a pet bat with coronavirus.
1: So, thank you for that question, Molly. And, um, yeah, I'm not sure pet bat would be a great idea. The next question is coming from Talia Lesser.
2: Hello hi.
0: Hi. Um, my question is, if kids do get the coronavirus, um, why do they get less symptoms than adults?
2: Well, we don't know. That's the. I mean, I don't know the answer to that question. But at the moment, it seems that children don't get it so severely. Now, there have been some children, very few, who have been made very seriously ill. But on the whole it seems to affect adults. It may be too, for reasons that I don't know, I don't think anybody can explain, it, men get it rather worse than women. Um, but I'm not sure about that. Um, but certainly it does seem that rather a lot of men have gone down with it more seriously. Um, but why it should be, um, I, I don't know. It is true, of course, that as a child under the age of 16, for example, your immune system, your defense against infection is slightly different. You have slightly different mechanisms which defend you against bacteria and viruses. So it might well be that you have a natural immunity as a child, which we don't have as adults. And of old people, people of my age, of course, have much less efficient immune systems. So people, when you get to, let's say 70, 80, 90, your immune system doesn't work as well and you're much more likely to get a whole range of different infections that you wouldn't have got when you were 16 or even 30. Thank you for that question Talia.
1: The next question is coming from Gaia Aharon.
0: Hello, um, my question is do you reckon we'll have a summer?
2: I, 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 I'm sorry Gaia, do I, do I, do I think what?
0: Um, do you think that we'll have a summer? like a summer holidays
2: (laughs) well we're having a spring aren't we i don't know if you've been able to go into the garden or perhaps out on uh, where do you live in 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 north london
0: no i live in essex
2: (laughs) Essex. (laughs) well i mean if you go if you go into the fields um you know taking exercise which we are allowed to do providing you don't go with other people uh or get in contact with other people you'll see the most amazing thing happening i mean things are coming into flower New shoots are coming. I've got a little tree in my garden, Gaia, which has got lots of little figs on it. They're tiny little figs. And that tree's never had figs before. So each shoot on that tree has got three or four different figs. And that is spring. Now, will we have a summer? Of course we'll have a summer. And hopefully we'll have a summer when we'll be out of of custody in the way we are at the moment. I hope that we will be released. Um, But I can't promise that. I don't know, because as I said to you, I can't predict the future, and nobody can say for certain, but it's probable that this infection will gradually peak. We think it might peak within the next few weeks, possibly, and then it'll start to go down. And by the summer, of course, we might be in a much better position and able to move much more freely. Um, But I think it's unlikely that we'll have a normal summer because I think the disruption to the whole world has been so Dramatic. I think you know all sorts of things have happened. You know, there are, you know, people's jobs have been at stake, and a whole lot of different things have happened. So I think we may have to accept the fact that it may be a rather quieter, a rather quieter summer than usual. But I hope that we will be free of our houses by then and be out in the open air a bit more and, you know, enjoying things. But it may be a bit different. You know, it's possible after big events like this that life changes a bit, often for the better. You know, we might. I mean, one of the things that's currently happening at the moment is suddenly climate change has become much less a risk because, of course, we've got no traffic. So the atmosphere is much clearer in nearly every major country. Interesting, isn't it?
1: Well, yeah, let's hope that that there are some positives that we can cling on to. I mean,
2: positives, I think. I think think human behaviour will change for the better, too, probably.
1: Now, um, what um, the next question is coming from Jamie King.
2: Jamie, hi. Hello.
1: Hi, um, what advice would you give final year medical students who are being
0: fast-tracked into the front line?
2: Well, are they being fast-tracked into the front line? Or are they being fast-tracked into helping the health service, which is very different? Yeah, help, helping the health service. Well, that's very different. I think that there are lots of things you can do as a medical student. For example, some of the medical students, which I know in my university, Imperial College, have offered to do some of the uh, DNA testing of the virus. Um, and that is not technically very demanding. Uh, PCR, I'm sure you you know all about PCR. Um, In fact, the technique for for RT-PCR was one that we, uh, in in my lab, we were one of the first people in the world to do it. So, um, and it can be done nowadays much more easily because you can do it automatically. Um, I think think it's wonderful that so many medical students are helping out. I think it's fantastic experience. Um, I very much hope and expect that our medical students will be properly protected, which is very, very important. Um, But I think, um, you know, to see uh, medicine when we are really stretched like this is a very, very interesting and important experience for medical students, because it's maybe something that you won't experience again. I mean, when I was a medical student, I uh, was asked to sit with a man who had a raging infection. Quite He was quite infectious in a side ward. I didn't have protective clothing. In those days, we didn't have protective clothing. And he was dying. He was dying of a septicemia, which was killing him. And he was unconscious most of the time, there were drips running, antibiotics running, and he was gradually going into coma. I sat with him for two nights, continuously, and um, uh, did all the observations that the nurses needed, measuring his blood pressure periodically, taking his pulse rate, and most of the time, <clears throat> most of the time, we, we never spoke. And I just sat there, I was terrified, I must tell you, it was, I was, a, I suppose, a third or fourth year medical student. And eventually, amazingly, against all odds, he was expected to die. Um, th- about two o'clock in the morning, I measured his pulse and it had come down and his blood pressure had gone up a little bit. He was still unconscious, he was still comatose, couldn't speak. And um, by the morning, he was awake and he walked out of hospital about a week later. And the doctors looking after him were so amazed, they wrote a scientific paper about his recovery and published it. My name was not on that paper. I was forgotten. And as he went out of hospital, I said to him, I'm so pleased to see that you got better. And he looked at me, he said, I must tell you, I knew you were sitting with me the whole time you were there. Now, I can tell you, what is it now, more than 50 years later, um, I remember that man. I don't know if he's alive now, but you know, perhaps he remembers me, but It is something which is a very, very important experience in my life because I realize that people can be completely unconscious, but even when they're unconscious, they know that things are going on around them and people care for them. So, Jamie, can you do anything during this? Yeah, of course, there are all sorts of things we can do as human beings, not just as medical students, but as a medical student, you've got a great deal more experience than most other human beings. Is that a helpful answer? Yeah, thank you. And,
1: and it's an amazing story, so thank you for that. Um the next question comes from Maya Sampson.
2: Maya, hello.
0: Hi. I've got two questions.
2: No, you only allowed. you only allowed one and a half. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the first one is what made you so interested in science? That's exactly
2: Uh when I was um Seven or eight years old, I used to like making things, and I used to um, take things apart, um, and I used to build models, and I—I um, I, I mean, I—I I did experiments. My 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 parents bought me a chemistry set. Nowadays, you couldn't get a chemistry set like that; be regarded as being too dangerous. Um, and then I wanted to be a scientist. And then when I was eight, I wanted to be an engine driver. (laughs) So um, I ended up being a scientist. Um, I mean, it's an interesting question because I wasn't sure I wanted to be a scientist. A lot of the time I was at school, I was much more interested in literature and English than I was in science, as I said earlier. But science is a wonderful thing to, to do because it is constantly interesting. You're constantly finding out things. And I suppose, my, keen, uh, my, my key thing was actually wanting to work out how things worked. I was always interested in that and, you know, what makes things work and trying to look at them better and studying them to see, you know, what was going on when you magnified them or whatever. And what is your half question you've got left?
0: Um, and what is your favourite type of science?
2: Oh, well, you know, as you get older, um, you realise there isn't a favourite type of science. Basically, in school, we learn about biology and chemistry and physics. Um, and, and we think of them as different sciences. Actually, all sciences are very similar. And there's no division, really. Now, in my laboratory, um, you know, as biologists, we work with physicists and engineers and mathematicians, and you can't tell one from the other. Um, So I don't really have a favourite science. I I think my best subject at school was physics, Um, but I became a biologist. Thank you. All right.
1: Great question, Maya. And the next question comes from Shana Baker.
2: Hi, Shana. Um,
0: I've got got two questions.
2: Like being the lord. I'm sorry, you're you're breaking up a little bit. I didn't really hear the question. Um, so
0: I've got two.
2: What is it like being a lord? And what? What does it, it be like
0: to be what? A lord.
2: What does it be like? What is? Well, it's it's very nice being being a lord because when you go out in the street, uh, everybody kneels in front of you and they. Brush your shoes uh, as you walk along and then actually um, they give you a castle to live in. Um, Do you want me to show you around the castle that I'm living in? And um, I have about 154 servants (laughs) uh, and I've got gold plates and I don't usually use the gold plates most of the time because I find the food gets cold on the gold so, um, so actually, on over Pesach we'll be using the gold plates. But we don't during the rest of the year, because really, so we have. Um, um, we end up on Pesach having very, very cold food. So, um, actually, most of the time being a lord, um, I don't really know. I'm, it's rather like being a professor. I don't quite know what being a professor means either, really. Um, but some people think it's better to be a professor than a lord, anyway. Um, but I do sit in Parliament, so normally we sit in Parliament, there are two houses of Parliament, the House of Commons where you're elected, or the Lords where you're put in place, usually by uh, the Prime Minister and his advisers. I was put in the Lords, oh, 25 years ago by um, the Prime Minister then, and we sit there and we help make laws and try to improve the law of the country not always very successfully but um, a lot of the time it's very boring sometimes it's very exciting and interesting Um, and um, what else can i say Um, occasionally we you know we 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 get invited to do nice things um, and not very often Um, and most of the time we don't use the gold plates
0: (laughs)
1: Thank you for that question, Shayna. Thank
0: Shana.
1: you. All right. Thanks, Shayna. And the next two questions come from the Bruner twins. So first up is Ophira. What's your question?
0: Um, hi. Um, as Pesach's coming up, what's your favourite part of the Seda and do you have any family traditions?
2: Oh, we have lots of family traditions, actually. Yes, huge numbers. First of all, um, my, my grandmother um, was uh, Sephardi my grandfather on my mother's side was Ashkenazi so we have quite a few Sephardi customs which are quite strange and the Sephardi family uh, my grandmother's family came from Ramsgate where Moses Montefiore who was a very famous uh, philanthropic, philanthropic Jew uh, lived. Sir Moses Montefiore he was, he was knighted by Queen Victoria and uh, my grandmother um, Used to play in his house and was used to sit on his knee when she was a little baby, and um, my great grandfather was his rabbi. So we have some. Of, so we have some of Montefiore's things. I can show you one thing. Hang on a second. Um, so one of the things I've got here is this is Moses Montefiore's. So, you see this, this round object?
0: Yeah. And it's hollow. Yeah.
2: Right? It's got a hole in the top there. And if you look, I don't know if you can see on the camera, it's got a coat of arms. Do you see that coat of arms Oh, there? yeah. The coat of arms is yeah, yeah. to Moses Montessori's coat of arms. Mm-hmm. Okay? And, and so this, I think, is... I think this is his warming pan. It's <laughs> Filled with hot water or ashes and put it in his bed to keep it warm. So we don't use those now, do we? <laughs> now, nowadays, nowadays we have houses which are heated or we, or at least we have yeah. blankets. So that, that is Moses. So at, at, now he had a butler. His butler's name was Willoughby, all right. And one of the, one of the customs was that when, uh, after they had, after they'd read the 10 plagues. Yeah. <laughs> Doms of and so on, All right when the Ten Plagues have been read, then, um, uh, uh, Sir Moses, or maybe, or maybe my grandfather, great-grandfather, I'm not sure which, would call to say, the plagues are finished, and Sir Moses Montefiore would call out, Willoughby, remove the plagues! And, <laughs> and, and take all the plague plates out, at the end, at the, at, before, before, before the, the actual, uh, meal. Yeah. So that's one. Um, then I suppose what my favorite, my favorite, I think my favorite part is the afikoman, and the afikoman is very puzzling. I mean, the afikoman is is a, is a very strange custom, and it's different in different countries. So, for example, some of the Safavid, particularly in Iraq and, and Syria, um, they think it's a lucky charm, and that some people even carry it around. They carry they carry a little piece of the afikoman in their pocket or in their handbag, or they tie it to their right arm. And they walk around with it because they think it's going to bring them luck or going to ward off the evil eye. Yeah. We tend to eat it but of course as you know <laughs> the custom is it's the last thing you eat because you have to have the taste of the Paschal lamb, the Pesach, which is actually what yeah. we used to eat before the temple, when the temple was still standing. But now of course we replaced it with the matzah. And,
1: mm.
2: and the question about stealing the Kerman is interesting as well. That's quite a new custom. It probably only dates from about the, from the time of Maimonides, from the Rumbum. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and certainly there were many rabbis who didn't really approve of children stealing the Afikirman. Yeah. One was Rabbi Bacharach in uh, 1700, who was the Rabbi of Worms. And he didn't think this was a good idea at all. So, um, I, I, I think I quite like that. The fact that, you know, we use it. Yeah, everybody now tries to get money off me. After paper because they stole the Africa and I had to get it back before we could bet. And, and and what, what about uh, tomorrow?
0: Oh um, hi. So um, do you do you ever feel any conflict between your faith and being a scientist?
2: No. So how? Oh sorry. No, no, I don't really. I mean, yeah. I, I I think you know I think it's I, I've, it's always puzzled me that people uh, believe that. Um, I, I mean, it's. Strange. I find it very. You know, have you heard of Richard Dawkins? Yeah. He's a very famous atheist, uh, and, and he's a scientist, and he's a friend of mine. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I think he's. I think he's completely wrong, and we argue all the time. But <laughs> uh, you know, I, I. I really think that, you know, it, it is ridiculous to believe that anybody has the truth. You know, very very, religious people. For example, some of the Haredi community. You know, absolutely seem to think they've got the complete truth. In their hands. Um, and many scientists feel exactly the same way. They've got the truth as well. But the truth is, we don't know what the truth is. That's very interesting. And so, you know, you say, well, science can prove everything. Well, it can't. You think, how do we explain the, the, the expanding universe? What's beyond the expanding universe? What's the nature of human consciousness? There are a whole range of major scientific questions. And you know, the interesting thing tomorrow is the more science we do, the less we understand. And I think both science and religion are about human uncertainty. I think we are religious to some extent because we're uncertain where we come from, where we're going to, what will become of us. And I think that's the same reason why we do science because we're uncertain. We want to find out more, but there are no proofs. I don't think there is such a thing as being absolutely certain. And I think when we get too certain, I think certainty is dangerous. Mm. So, you know, both in science and in religion, I think certainty is dangerous. So your question is an interesting one. So do I think there's a conflict? Not really, no. I mean, you know, each of us will have a different belief about how we see, for example, God, or we don't see God. Different people have different views about that. Uh, You know, some people have a very strict view of what they think of Hashem, you know, whatever. I, I, I really don't think, to me, that's a conflict. Um, I think it's a philosophy.
0: Yeah.
2: That's a very
1: very yes. fascinating take there for, on an age-old question, so good, good question, Tamara. And finally, um, a question from Ethan Fox, which, take it away. So I watched it the other day, but what was it like working with James Corden and performing science experiments on The Late Late Show?
2: Well, James, James is, uh, is lovely. I mean, I've known, I've known James for a, a long time, and we've done a few um, things together. We'll do some more, I've no doubt. James is very talented. He's got a fantastic sense of humour. He's an amazingly musical person, isn't he? Don't you think? He's extraordinary. Yeah. Um, and it's fun, and you probably see that You know, I tease him. So I don't let him... I don't rehearse with him deliberately. I don't rehearse with him. When I do those things, I do them without letting him know what I'm going to do. Largely because I don't know what I'm gonna do either, really, sometimes. Um, but I think it's funnier that way. I think it's quite I think it's quite funny to do that sort of stuff with, with James. James is brilliant at um at playing along. And you know, he, he he's he's a very, very human individual. And I think I suppose he's likable uh because he is so human and because actually, you know, he's not too full of himself. I think people who get very arrogant who think they're you know, amazing celebrities, aren't really very interesting. And, and James is a very sensitive, real human being. Um, and he's got a great sense of humor and he's fun to be with. Um, and, you know, um, you know, carpool karaoke. He's absolutely amazingly musical, for example, isn't he?
1: Well, that's a great question and a very interesting answer. So thank you, Professor Winston. Now, okay. I've got a few more quickfire questions before we wrap up. So the first one is that, I mean, you've apparently previously said that pandemics could be bigger than climate change and that the, the risk has gone under the radar. So are you surprised that coronavirus happened or do you think it was inevitable?
2: Well, I mean, I, the, 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 the talks I've given in schools and elsewhere I always argue that pandemic pandemics were pretty well inevitable Uh, and of course the biggest problem of course is the technology which produces the pandemic is the technology which we most value and want which is the aeroplane the aeroplane brings in brings in uh viruses and organisms which we don't expect and we forget how vulnerable we are i think you know in a way i mean it's a terrible thing to say this but in a way perhaps it's a good thing because it will Make us think about ourselves a bit more carefully in future, perhaps. Yeah. It might make us a bit more humble. It might recognise that humans are frail, and you know that comes a lot into hillim when we see how you know when the when the Psalms tell us how how frail we are, and I and I think that's quite important. We're not masters of the universe. So, um, am I surprised? Yes, I suppose all of us were surprised at this pandemic because it's been so so sudden, so serious, and has had such a powerful effect in so many countries simultaneously in a way that I think nobody really predicted. And unfortunately, the, you know, the, 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 the poverty that it's caused for some people and the, uh, and the loss of life for others are, 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 terrible, are terrible things, which perhaps we could have protected ourselves against better than we have done. But we'll see. I mean, we will get over it. Uh, I've no doubt we'll get over it. I'm quite confident that it'll happen. Science will solve this problem. Um, And I think, you know, we shouldn't be terribly anxious in the long term. uh, This is something which is going to be solved. And, um, you know, for example, we've talked about one or two of the things, one of which was vaccination, we kind of referred to earlier. Secondly, the idea that certain drugs may help to protect us against the virus. And for the moment, of course, we have to do this self-isolation, which is, rather rather tedious, but actually at least we're all alive, aren't we? And that's something which is to to remember. And you know, we will and it's very disruptive to our lives. All of us have had our lives disruptive. But yeah. you know, we'll get round it. And from time to time, if you look through history, happened in thirteen forty seven with the Black Death, it came back again in the in the fifteenth century and so on. Um it's you know, viruses have hit uh humanity in this last century a few times but we do recover, we do get over it, we go back to normal life, and perhaps we have to learn lessons from what we've seen.
1: Thank you. And um, in, the, in the UK government's response to, to the outbreak, do you think that there's been a quite interesting conflict between science and politics?
2: I don't think I can really comment on that, you know. Um, <laughs> and the reason why I don't particularly want to comment on that publicly is because I think the time for recrimination is when this is over. Yeah. I think, you know, it would be much more sensible for me to as a member of the House of Lords to be highly critical where I think it's needed in due course. But at the moment, I think we should be all working together. I think that's, the, that, I think that's really an important message. Because if we don't, I think we cause more alarm than we need, more panic than we need. And I think we don't actually persuade people to work together. So for example, you know um, the idea, for example, of, of a medical student coming in to help with, uh, you know, with, 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 with some of the things we can do. That's wonderful, but if yeah, we really if we are really ready to blame people, we would forget about that. So I I think we need to be quite positive.
1: Yes, nicely put. I would agree with that. Um, I mean, the the next generation, my generation, have become a lot more passionate about climate change. Um, do you think that this current crisis will affect that issue, and how do you think that we should take this issue forward after it's all over?
2: Well, I think it might put climate change into into um, into better perspective. Um, because I think, you know, what is very clear from the pandemic is that we need very good science for all these things which affect us. And um, that is needed for the climate change problems as well. So we have... I love opportunities to use that science over the next years to come. And I'm sure that both these problems will be solved by better technology.
1: Right, thank you for that. Now um, now every night here at GLGB Virtual, we announce a new daily act of kindness. Could you tell us some of the acts of kindness that you've been performing recently?
2: <laughs> um, well, Mm, well uh, things i don't really want to talk about terribly I think <laughs> um, but certainly i've been uh, more aware of one or two charities that need help than than than, than mm. previously uh, this week um, uh, but acts of ki- kindness um, that's really difficult isn't it I mean one doesn't really want to boast about one's acts of kindness does one um, I, I I've stopped kicking my wife um <laughs> And I've been—I've not sworn at my grandchildren, of course, who can't see me, um, we have to—we have to use FaceTime. Um, and um, I've got, um, you know, a couple of PhD students who I've been coaching um, on online, and I've been fairly cruel to them um, to make sure they write their theses better. But I've also actually been very kind to them after I've been cruel. Uh, and I think that act of kindness is partly due to the fact that they feel a bit frightened about the coronavirus. So, you know, I don't want to make them feel too too uneasy. And of course, yeah. they're both very good students.
1: Yeah, well, I think kindness is especially important in a in a frightening time like this. Um, now, what what gives you hope for the future, I guess, both in the medical field, but also
2: in society as a whole? Well, I think we should learn A number of lessons. And one of the most important lessons to learn is to understand that we all fail. All of us. Everybody sitting around here watching, you know, watching this and listening, and me too, we all fail. And it's really important to fail. And it's really important to fail because only by failure do we learn to do things better. And so coming back to the coronavirus again, of course, in some respect we've probably failed. We didn't predict this in advance. We probably didn't handle it quite as well as we should have done but we will learn from this failure to do it better in the future and each of you watching this will fail in different things that you do and it's very important that you do fail don't be frightened of failure it's one of the things to learn because by learning how you do something better next time is how we all succeed eventually certainly applies in my life every single experiment i've done starts with a failure and then you try to work out why it's failed and try to work out how it does better so i think that's one of the fundamental things to say.
1: That's very good advice, thank you. I mean, um, we've talked a lot about the role of kind of developing developments in science, but I guess in technology like social media and video calling apps such as Zoom, this one, I mean, do you think they've shown their more positive side?
2: Well, I never thought that they didn't have a positive side. I, I, I mean, I, I, I've, I've never understood the, the suspicion of social media. I mean, I think that social media on the whole are things that we need to use properly like anything else, you know, um, just as we need to use energy properly, you know, oil or whatever it might be, or uh, electricity. Uh, I, I think social media are something we're still coming to terms with. And I think sometimes people condemn social media, uh, television, um, the electronic screen, completely unnecessarily. And yes, I think that, you know, what we're seeing here with Zoom and FaceTime and these other things is tremendously positive yeah um of course you know any technology and this includes this technology has a downside and we have to look at those downsides in every technology we use and make wise decisions about how we use that technology better that's what we do as humans and i think from a religious point of view that's what we do as jews i think that the jew is required to use his god-given intelligence wisely so that actually he can improve things around him, and that, Im- that certainly means uh, technology. If you look at the, the beginning of, of, of the Bible, of, of Baratheon, of Genesis, um, technology starts right at the beginning there, and the notion of actually trying to improve the world is something which is embedded in the Jewish uh, philosophy. So many Jews have been scientists. It's not an accident. It's not an accident. It's actually something that we do to improve the world around us. And we don't always get it right.
1: Right. Well, it's still a a very beautiful idea and a beautiful concept. I mean, do you have any kind of words of wisdom or practical advice for the mums and dads and thousands of young people watching watching out there right now?
2: Well, I would say it's just very difficult to sleep at the moment, isn't it? Um, I think a lot of your mums and dads uh, feel anxious and sleepless. I think we all feel that our routine has been... Um, kind of, uh, if you like, disrupted. I suppose the the best advice I can think of is to say, you know, it, it isn't really helpful being anxious, too anxious particularly. What's important actually is to really take things as they come, have a sense of humor, because that's really important. Find things to do and try to make sure that you go to bed reasonably tired, having done a few things. Take some exercise and sleep well. That's very good. Good practical advice that I think we should all take.
1: Um, What do you think the role of youth organisations like JLGB and initiatives like JLGB Virtual, what do you think the role they play, what do you think the role that that they have is in kind of rebuilding the sense of normality and supporting mental health and community, all that sort of thing? How important do you think it is?
2: I think you have to ask your participants that question, not me. Um, But I think, of course, this is, I, I wouldn't, if it wasn't important, I wouldn't be here. So uh, the answer, of course, is that I think this kind of thing is very, very helpful, very important. I think, you know, all of us are very puzzled about where we are at the moment. Um, We're all uh, feeling very uncertain. And so this is a very important way of having a sense of community, isn't it? And that sense of community is what drives human life forward
1: right that's very interesting now we've got one more question which is what's next for you what 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 do we have to look forward to
2: next from your work well at the moment i'm i'm writing a project grant for a piece of research i'm doing so i'm i'm looking at the metabolism of human embryos and um, i was going to work on that this evening but i think it's too late now because you kept me going for so long (laughs) um but i mean um I think for me, um, what has been really useful about this last few weeks in in self-isolation is being able to read much more than I probably would do during a normal working day. And also I'm writing a new book. I've written lots of books before, but I'm writing another book, which is a series of anecdotes about things that have happened in my life, a kind of memoir. Um, I think it's funny, but I... I, (laughs) You know, I, I, I'm not sure yet. I mean, I hope people will laugh at it. It doesn't make me look very good, by the way, I have to tell you.
1: <laughs> well, thank you very much for answering all our questions, Professor Winston. It's been really incredible to have you here to answer everyone's questions, and we really do appreciate it.
2: Okay, thank you. Thanks, Luke.
1: Thank now, um, just I'd like to say that we've heard whilst on air that the, that the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, has gone into intensive care. And everyone here at JLGB would like to wish him the best and wish him a speedy recovery. But from us, that's it for tonight. So thank you for everyone. Thank you for everyone tuning in this evening and yet again being part of JLGB Making History.
0: Thank you so much for listening to JLGB Virtual. We are live. Take care of yourselves and stay safe and we shall see you again soon.